Right, can you turn in your Bibles, the church Bibles, to page 1000? And this is Paul's letter to Philemon. It's a very short letter and we're going to read all of it together. So page 1000 in the church Bibles. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Anisimus, whose father, I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he may serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you, for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you, and so do Mark Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for its usefulness in teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Do pray now that through the power of your spirit, you might sharpen our minds and soften our hearts as we look together at this letter of Philemon and consider the whole area of forgiveness in our Christian lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. God may forgive you, but I never can. When I was a boy, we had as a family a favourite quiz book. And part of that quiz book was a section which dealt with famous quotes from British history. And the one that I've just spoken to you was one of the quotes I remember in particular. God may forgive you, but I never can. These words were allegedly spoken by Queen Elizabeth I uh, to one of her ladies-in-waiting, who had actually taken for herself a present meant for the Queen. God may forgive you, but I never can. I think Elizabeth would have done very well to have studied the letter of Philemon, because what this letter is all about is forgiveness. So let's set the scene. The year is 61 AD. The Apostle Paul is a prisoner under house arrest in Rome. And it's likely that he would have been chained to a Roman soldier, yet being under house arrest rather than in prison, he would have been able to have contact with other people on a daily basis. And while there, he had encountered a runaway slave, Anisimus. Anisimus had become a Christian through contact with Paul. And what Paul now does is to send him back to his Christian master, Philemon, with this letter that we've just read to accompany him on his journey. Now, we need to be clear that Philemon was not only a Christian, but he was one of the leaders of the church in Colossae. Uh, now, that is what was called Asia Minor, is now part of Turkey. And do you, or did you notice, as we read this letter, how many different people were mentioned in it? And they're all people who come into play with Paul and in this particular church. So you have those around Paul in Rome, Timothy, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and now Onesimus. And then you have the Christians in the church in Colossae to whom this letter is being sent. Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus, and all the unnamed members of the church to whom this public letter is being sent. Uh, incidentally, it's likely that Aphia was Philemon's wife uh, and Archippus was his son. It seems likely also that Archippus was probably one of the leaders of this particular church in Colossae. So that's what we're focusing on this morning. And we could, in fact, have a whole series of sermons on Philemon because there's so much treasure in this particular book. But what we're going to do this morning is to actually concentrate on the three main characters that we've encountered. So, of course, they're Paul, 
the Philemon and the Onesimus. What we're going to do is to do this under three particular headings. Onesimus, someone who needs forgiveness. Philemon, someone who has the chance or opportunity to forgive. And Paul, someone who acts as peacemaker. And I hope that as we focus on each of these particular characters, we'll see three things. How each one of us needs forgiveness. How each one of us has regular opportunities to forgive. And how each one of us should act as a peacemaker in our daily lives at home and particularly in the church here at Christchurch Central. So, first off, we'll start with Onesimus, somebody who very much needs forgiveness. Now, in the letter, um, Onesimus is referred to as a bondservant or a slave, uh, and we're certainly not going to look this morning at the rights and wrongs of slavery in the ancient world. But we do need to remember, without going into too much detail, that slavery in the first century AD was somewhat different than, say, slavery in the southern states uh, of America before the American Civil War. A slave might be a captive from a conquered people that that Rome had uh, conquered as they expanded. But alternatively, and we don't know whether this applied to Onesimus, it might be what was known as an indentured servant. That is somebody who would sell themselves into a situation of servitude as a means of achieving a basic level of food and lodging. And this could be a very reasonable existence in the ancient world. Uh, Apparently, it's estimated that the majority of workers in the Roman Empire were in fact slaves or indentured servants in this way. Some of them may even have been uh, professionals, so they might have been a doctor or something like that. But whatever their position, whatever their role, the fact they were a slave meant that they had clear obligations to their master and the penalty for running away would have been severe. So that's the situation that Onesimus was in. It's also clear from the letter that Onesimus had not been a model slave. Uh, Can you look at verse 11? Paul writes, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. What Paul is doing here is actually making a pun on the name of Onesimus, because actually the word Onesimus means useful. He had been useless, but now to Paul he is useful. Also likely that Philemon had been robbed in some way by Onesimus and had run away. This is the impression we get from the letter. But whatever the situation, the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon had broken down in a big way and it needed sorting out. So Onesimus had escaped from Colossae, from Philemon. He'd somehow ended up in Rome. He may have gone there because it was the anonymity of the big city. Uh, But whatever the reason, he had then encountered Paul. And although he was in prison, 
Paul had taken this opportunity to lead Onesimus to discover the Lord Jesus and he'd become a Christian. And after that, it appears Onesimus had indeed become very useful to Paul. It also become very dear to Paul as well. Um, in verse 10, Paul writes these words. I appeal to you for my child whose father I became in my imprisonment. And can you look at, particularly at verse 12 on from that, Paul's heart had become attached to Onesimus so much that Paul refers to him tenderly as my very heart. In the original Greek, the word heart literally means apparently internal organs. It communicates a very deep affection and a very considerable love that Paul now had for Onesimus. But now following his conversion, what Onesimus needed to do was to redress the wrongs he had committed. Now, it's, of course, imposs it's possible from the letter that uh, Philemon might have freed him from his obligations. We don't know as a slave. But whatever was going to happen, it was incumbent upon Onesimus to begin the process of restoration by offering to make good whatever wrongs had caused him to flee from Philemon in the first place. So in this situation, what does Onesimus need? Well, of course, first and foremost, he needs to be forgiven. Philemon needs to welcome him back into his household, into his role as a useful servant and into his good books. Onesimus needs Philemon to forgive him. So with this in view, what's happening is that Paul is doing the right thing and sending him back and sending him back with this particular letter. Now, there's also the question of restitution because if indeed Onesimus had stolen from Philemon, something needed to be done about it. But how could he, Onesimus, make good what he'd uh, stolen from his master. Very likely it would be impossible for him to do that. So do you notice from the letter that what happens is that Paul actually offers to make good the debt of Onesimus on his behalf. If he owes you anything, charge it to me, Paul says in verse 18. We'll look at that particular thing uh, a little later. So here we have the slave who stole from his master, then ran away, encountered Paul, and so through Paul found Christ. Can you imagine the scene? Onesimus, with this letter, would now turn up at Philemon's house. Nothing but a letter with him from Paul. Can you imagine the former slave standing in the doorway as his former employer opens the door? Onesimus needs forgiveness. He is unable to repay. He can offer nothing. He deserves punishment. He stands there with no excuses to make. I'm sure you'll agree that this situation should immediately ring bells with us because we all need forgiveness. And do you see how this situation is a picture of our need of forgiveness? Need of forgiveness by God 
as sinners, we are all guilty in God's sight. We cannot make any restitution ourselves for our sins. We need to throw ourselves entirely on God's mercy. And yet, of course, the wonderful news is that just as Paul was willing to take on the debt of Onesimus, so Jesus on the cross has already paid the price of our total failure to measure up to God's standards. In the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that I'm sure many of us know, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But just as all of us need God's forgiveness, as it were, once and for all, for our failure, we need his forgiveness on a daily basis as well, as we continue to fall short of his standards, even after coming to faith. In addition to that, we also need the forgiveness of each other, and the forgiveness of each other in the church, in order to live in harmony with one another. We need forgiveness for our thoughtless behaviour, forgiveness for an unkind word, and forgiveness for not putting the interests of others above those of ourselves. So can I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, starting to read at verse 3, and you can find this page 980 in the Church Bibles. Again, is the Apostle Paul writing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wonder how often each one of us follow those instructions in verse 3, right at the beginning of that passage. That is, in humility, to count others more significant than ourselves. And of course, as we've just seen, that the standard that Paul introduces here is the supreme standard of Jesus' own humility and condescension. We all fall short, don't we? We all need God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of Christian brothers and sisters around us. So then we have Onesimus, someone who desperately needs forgiveness. But secondly also, we have Philemon himself, 
someone who has the chance to forgive. It seems clear that the Apostle Paul never visited Colossae, where Philemon lived, yet he did spend three years in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was the port on the Mediterranean, I think about 100 miles to the west of Colossae. And it seems likely that while Paul had been in Ephesus, and he was there for quite a time, Philemon had encountered Paul and had become a Christian through direct contact with him. It's also very clear from this letter that Paul has a very high opinion of Philemon. He was clearly hospitable. We read in verse 2 that the local church actually met in his house. And can you look with me for a moment at verses 4 and 5 of the letter? Let me read those. Paul writes, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. For the sake of Christ, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Notice there how Paul describes Philemon's Christian faith and his love for the Lord Jesus. And his also love, his love he had for the local church. It seems that his love for Christ and his love for the local church actually worked off one another. So Philemon was a godly man who was held in high regard by Paul. In particular, also, if you can look at verse 22, you can see that part of this high regard was the prayers that Philemon was known for. Paul writes, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. So that's Philemon the Christian. Let's now look at Philemon the wealthy slave owner. And it's not for me this morning to make a judgment in the 21st century about this. But let's look for a moment at what the situation would have been like for a slave owner in the first century. Number of implications would apply. If a slave went astray, you as a slave owner were expected to punish them. If you didn't, other slaves were thought to be in danger of taking advantage of your leniency. Think also, too, of the other members of Philemon's slave-owning class, how they would view his behaviour if he handed out free and undeserved forgiveness. And undergirding all this, we have to remember that in the Roman world, the ideal idea of forgiveness was completely alien to Roman society. So with all that in mind, at one level, we can imagine Philemon saying, yes, as a Christian, I will forgive Onesimus. But first, he must be punished. This would somehow have combined the need for forgiveness, but also help to preserve his status in the class of slave owners in Colossae. 
But let's look now at what Paul is actually asking Philemon to do. This is verses 14 to 16. Paul writes, But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that's Onesimus, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. We need to understand that in first century Roman society, that request would have been dynamite. It's not, of course, entirely clear whether Paul is asking Philemon to free Anisimus or not. But what is crystal clear from Paul's request is he is expecting an entirely transformed relationship between Philemon and Anisimus. And a relationship based on the fact that Anisimus is now Philemon's beloved brother in Christ. It's all profoundly countercultural, and it has much, I think, to teach us today. Can I invite you for a moment to think of a particular circumstance um, when you've been wronged or deeply wounded by the actions or words of another Christian? Uh, we may well be able to think of something like that. I can think of personally a number of examples. And speaking from personal experience, I suspect that our knee-jerk reaction, at the very minimum, would be to want justice, to want a recognition by the other party that we've been hurt, that we've been treated badly, and their appreciation of how much they have wronged us. Now, I don't want to, in any way, this morning, minimise the importance of justice and putting things right between Christians through mutual forgiveness. Nevertheless, I do think that what Paul expects of Philemon here does touch a deeper need that we all have to forgive each other and bear with each other in love. Let's just um, focus on this and look at what it might mean in practice. Uh, let me read, first of all, a couple of verses, and then we'll look at a slightly longer passage about this whole area of forgiveness. First of all, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. No need to, to look this up. Where Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is what John Calvin commented on this verse. We should be ready to forgive. It may sometimes happen that men are kind and tender-hearted, and yet, when they receive improper treatment, do not so easily forgive injuries. So that those whose kindness of heart, which in other respects disposes them to acts of humanity, may not fail in their duty through the ingratitude of men, Paul encourages them to discover a readiness to lay aside resentment. To give his exhortation the greater weight, Paul holds out the example of God, 
who has forgiven us through Christ far more than any mortal man can forgive his brethren. So that's Calvin's comments on that verse in Ephesians. Second verse I'd like to read is a very well-known one. It's from Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And these are words from the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. When we say that, and we've said them already this morning, I wonder whether we do realise the full significance of what we're praying when we say these words. The words literally mean that the measure of forgiveness we are seeking from God is the same as the measure of forgiveness we have ourselves used to forgive those who have wronged us. Let me say that again. The words literally mean that the measure of forgiveness we are seeking from God is the same as the measure of forgiveness we have ourselves used to forgive those who have wronged us. Clearly the point here is that we who have received such forgiveness from God should be so moved with gratitude to him that we also forgive those who are debtors to us. So can you turn with me now to a slightly longer passage, that's Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, and you can find that on page 823 of the Church Bibles. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, this is to the Lord Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison, until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger 
his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let me just make two observations from this very hard-hitting passage that fit with our theme of forgiveness this morning. Right at the top of the passage in verses 21 and 22, we read these words. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Apparently within Judaism in the first century, three times was sufficient to show a forgiving spirit. So the Apostle Peter, in talking about seven times, believes he has shown great generosity in making that statement. But Jesus makes it clear that we as his disciples need to forgive 77 times. In other words, to forgive without keeping any score at all. Secondly, though, can you look right at the end of the passage, verses 34 and 35, to see the face of the unforgiving servant. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Notice the final phrase there, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. A transformed heart must result in a transformed life that offers the same mercy and forgiveness as we have received from God. If we do not grant forgiveness to others, then it shows that our hearts have not experienced and understood God's far greater forgiveness of our innate sinfulness and our failure to meet his standards. So in this important letter we've seen Anisimus, we've now seen Philemon, someone who has the chance to forgive, and we might add someone who was under a Christian obligation to forgive, based on the words of Jesus. Finally, though, and more briefly, let's look at Paul, someone who acts as peacemaker. So if you could turn back now to the letter of Philemon, uh, page 1000, and look with me at verse 17. Paul writes to Philemon, receive him as you would receive me. That's strong stuff. And it shows that Paul was intimately involved in this situation. He was passionately concerned for the need for reconciliation, that this should actually take place. And as we've already seen, in verse 18, Paul asked Philemon to charge him, Paul, with any debts that need to be repaid on behalf 
of Onesimus. He is willing to foot the bill in order to see forgiveness take place and the relationship to be restored. And you also notice in verse 20 that Paul makes himself the object of that appeal. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you. In the Lord, refresh my heart in Christ. Now can you look back at verse 7 earlier on in the letter? Paul had rejoiced because the hearts of the saints had been refreshed through Philemon. And again, look for a moment at verse 12, where Paul said, I am sending my very heart, referring to sending back Onesimus to Philemon. And now towards the end of the letter in verse 20, he picks up this language again and asks Philemon to refresh my heart in Christ. What the Lord has already worked in Philemon's life is to become a reality in his relationship with Onesimus. This is what Paul is seeking to take place. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul's personal identification with the plight of Onesimus doesn't stop there. Uh, do you notice that in verse 22, Paul concludes with these words, At the same time, prepare a guest room, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. It's as if Paul doesn't want to leave it there, but wants to visit Philemon in order to make sure that this relationship has been restored and maybe also to encourage this relationship further. So bearing all this in mind, what can we learn from Paul's example here? In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The words, for they shall be called sons of God, show how important being a peacemaker is. There is something profoundly Christ-like about being a peacemaker. And let me be clear, we're not talking here about interfering in the business of other people in the church, being busybodies. What we're seeing here in this letter, which we should take account of, is the vital importance of working together, maintaining and restoring peace for the sake of Christ's body, the church. But in the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. So for Paul, being a peacemaker was costly in terms of his emotions, his time, and potentially also his money. So Paul is showing here Christian brotherly love for both Onesimus and Philemon. He was bold in his request to Philemon. He's asking him in a spirit of selfless humility. 
And can I suggest that all these characteristics we can learn from and apply here at Christchurch Central? As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then later on in the same chapter. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So to, to summarise and, and pulling things together, we've seen how each one of us needs forgiveness. We've seen how each one of us has regular opportunities to forgive. And we've seen how each one of us should act as a peacemaker in the church. I wonder, pulling those thoughts together, whether that reminds you of anything in particular. Let me read some verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the Lord's Supper. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You'll recall that every time uh, that we celebrate the Lord's Supper together here at church, we're reminded that if we hold anything against a fellow believer or out of fellowship with them, we should not participate in the Lord's Supper. And can I suggest, and I say this to myself as well, that we would do well to remind ourselves of the message of Philemon with our need for forgiveness and our opportunities to forgive when we do take the Lord's Supper together. Right at the beginning, I quoted uh, from Elizabeth I. You may remember I said this. God may forgive you, but I never can. By contrast, as members together of God's covenant community, we should all say with confidence together that because God has forgiven us, we should certainly forgive one another. Uh, let's pray. Do thank you, Heavenly Father, for what we've learned from your word this morning about our need for forgiveness, what we've learned together about the Christian necessity to forgive, and what we've learned about the need for each one of us to be a peacemaker in the church. And we ask now that through the power of your Spirit, you might help us to remember what we've learned together now and to continue to reflect and apply these great truths in our daily lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.